0: My name's Bobby. I'm an alcoholic. Hey. My home group's the McKean Street Miracle Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet at St. Agnes Hospital, Broad McKean Street, South Philadelphia, seven nights a week at seven o'clock. If you're ever in the neighborhood, please stop by. we would like to have you. I didn't know who was going to pick me up. I guess Bob missed me a couple years ago. I had a different hairstyle, and I told him. He said, I remember you had it like a, a flat top. I said, you know, you're in relationships, you change hairstyles. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh <laughs> Uh, chapter five of the Big Book tells me what I'm supposed to do. I will tell you what my life was like as an active ha- as an active alcoholic in a general way, what happened to me, and what my life is like today as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was born and raised in a very blue collar ethnic neighborhood. Uh, I got seven brothers and sisters. My mother was pregnant for nine years. Like we're all like, I think we go from 37 to 46. My brothers and sisters. It's just incredible. We lived in a small three bedroom row home. Uh, I never felt a part of. I always wanted to be a part of, I never did, and I uh, wouldn't feel a part of until uh, really almost a couple years in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, We had no booze at all in my house. My father did not drink. My mother could not drink. My mother suffered from a history of mental illness and abuse prescription medication, so we had no booze at all in the house. My grandparents lived around the corner from us, and uh, they had a, a bar in their basement, and that's where all the family functions were held. And I loved my grandparents, so they were really cool, you know, and I was somewhat embarrassed because they were immigrants, uh, you know, and the kids uh, I hung in the neighborhood used to make fun, like the way they talked. But, uh, man, they were great, and that's where all the parties were. And uh, I, since they lived right around the corner, I spent a lot of time there, and I loved the parties. Like the christenings, the you know, the graduations and things like that, and the bar was always jumping. <coughs> and uh, th- w- that's where I had my first drink. I didn't get drunk the first time I drank, but I remember uh, I was running around the bar uh, polishing off the half-empties. Or the have falls it depends on perspective. <laughs> and I, I remember my uncles, and I had a bunch of them, you know, and my uncles would look and say, hey, look at Bobby, look at that. And that's what I craved. I craved the attention. And I remember what it was. Like I said, I didn't get drunk, but I remember it was Ballantyne beer, because Valentine used to sponsor the Phillies. And I remember going up to Connie Mack Stadium with my father in the old school board in right center field, you know. My drinking, uh, it really took off in high school. Not my neighborhood, you know, you hung in a corner, and it's just, just one of the neighborhoods. And all the kids in the neighborhood went to the local diocesan high school. However, my parents had sent me to a private Jesuit high school. And I felt kind of different there because most of the kids who went to the school were from affluent families from the suburbs. It was just me and a couple other dirt balls in the neighborhood who went there. <laughs> and we had a reputation because we used to walk to school. And a lot of these kids, they would be getting dropped off by their parents in their luxury automobiles, and me and the guys from the neighborhood were inside robbing their lockers. <laughs> and, and I knew that was wrong, but because we used to walk to school, we had some sort of reputation. So I, I capitalized on that. Like, I was like a legend in my own mind. You know, they, they were was, they was scared of us. You know, and uh, it was just nuts. Uh, I remember uh, my. I was at the prep. I had about two or three weeks in September. It's football season. There was a away game. Uh, we rented a bus. There was drinking. There was fighting. There was police activity. Man, it was just great. And I remember <laughs> we all had uh, we all had to go see the disciplinarian uh, the, the, the Monday, the first day back to school. And he must have about nine of us outside his office. But it was just me and another kid from the neighborhood. We were the only freshmen, and we were you know we were the, everyone else is like juniors and seniors. And he came right up to us. He said, "What's with you kids? You, you guys here in a couple of weeks, and you get this jackpot already." And I just shrugged my shoulders. and said, you know, Father, just one of them things. And what it was, it didn't take me long to size up situations, you know. I didn't hang around with the, you know, the smart, well, most of the kids were smart, but they had like a, an AP class, an advanced place. But I didn't hang around with them kids because they were geeks. I didn't hang around with the athletes because I wasn't one. I, I, I hung around the knuckleheads, the guys about partying. And, it, and it, like I said, it didn't take me long to size up situations. I picked the team who I want to be with, you know. Uh, but it was nuts. Uh, my sophomore year... Uh, this school is in the middle of North Philadelphia, pretty rough area. It's on the corner of 18th and Thompson. Four blocks away is the subway, Broad Street. These kids used to take the trolley car from 18th Street to Broad Street, four blocks, because they were scared to walk. A lot of them was their first introduction to the inner city. However, me and the kids in the neighborhood, we walked to school, and we thought we were tough guys, you know, and uh, three blocks away, on the corner of 15th and Gerard, was a bar called the Ebony Showcase Lounge. Now, the Ebony... Uh, by its name was a neighborhood bar. Uh, they had go-go girls, and, you know, and I used to go my sophomore year at the prep. I was a regular at the Ebony, and I went there for a couple of different reasons. You know, I, I went to see, <laughs>
1: you know, I did. I went
0: to see the dancers, you know, I went to have a couple cold ones, but a lot of times, most of the time, it was the, the image that I, I needed to portray. You know, I want to show these guys how tough I was. I'm not a tough guy. I never was. And I can now tell you, every time I strolled out to Rod Avenue or sat in the Ebony, I was terrified. But I couldn't, anybody, I couldn't let anybody else know. Because I had a lot of nicknames, and one of those nicknames was Crazy Coil. And I would do things in my gut that I knew was wrong, that it went, to, it went against the values uh, that were instilled in me as a kid. It went against everything. But I did it anyway because the need for me to be accepted by you outweighed anything else, you know. And so it was nuts. When it came time to graduate from the prep, I really had no desire to further my education, and it kind of took my parents off because we didn't have much growing up. They made a lot of sacrifices, and me and all my brothers and sisters, we all went to private school. So I knew I couldn't stay home because it'd be hell to catch, you know. And I, you know, I couldn't get a job. I, you know, I'm just a high school graduate, no skills, you know, and uh, had no money, and uh, you know, my options were limited. So the only only thing left was uh, the military, and I enlisted. And that really wasn't a bright move because no, back then nobody else was going. In fact, some people were going north, you know. But uh, in fact, in my family, you know, I had an opportunity in my junior year, you know, the, the paperwork was generated. I had an opportunity to go to uh, a Naval Academy. And uh, many of my uncles, uh, six of my uncles were all uh, Annapolis graduates. And I, that was just somewhat expected. But, you know, my drink in my senior year, I was getting a lot of jackpots. I didn't do badly in school, but I didn't do great either. I gave the bare minimum effort required to get by. I just skated by just... Enough to keep the heat off me, but that was it. And I knew that I was capable of doing a lot of other things, but I just didn't care. And and I knew that you know if I if I went that road uh, to the naval academy, that that would really get jammed up and the pressure from the family. So I, I knew I couldn't go that road. So I enlisted. And like I said, it really wasn't a bright move, but that's what I did. I, I get sent overseas And I spent 13 months overseas And that's when my drinking really took off I never messed around with all the substances Up to this point I never even took a hit on a joint You know And uh, But I knew there was a lot of guys From my neighborhood Who were going over And got whacked on certain things But I had a fear of that stuff You know But uh, I was definitely drunk By the time I went in You know I was there a couple months And several good friends of mine Got killed And I didn't know how to handle that So uh, But I knew the booze And the pain And that's what I did I drank enough Just, to, just so I wouldn't think About certain things You know And that's just the way I I dealt with things. Because growing up, we didn't tell anybody nothing. You know, it was all surface stuff if we talked. All the, the, like, the deep stuff we kept inside. You know, you kept inside jewelry and you kept inside the walls of the house. And once you moved out of the house, whether you got married or went to school, whatever the deal was, you were no longer privy to the secrets of the house. I mean, that's not a shot at my folks. That's just the way it was. You know, we didn't talk about nothing. You stuffed everything. So uh, I, I drank enough to stuff the pain. And just like in the service, just like in school, I, I didn't distinguish myself, and I didn't do badly either. I gave the bare minimum effort required to get by. You know, I would do my job and do what I needed to do, and but that was about it. You know, and I was satisfied with that. I was satisfied with mediocrity, you know. <clears throat> my tour was up. I came home. I enrolled in school, St. Joe's, uh, Jesuit University. I went there for a bit, and the same thing, just going through the motions. When I was in school, I, I wound up taking a couple of civil service examinations, and, and again, just skating by, you know. One day, a friend of mine called me up. He said, "Bobby, the Phillies are playing uh, tomorrow afternoon. It was one of those businessman specials, you know, like like a 12:30 game in the middle." Uh, it was in May. It was towards the end of the semester, and I said, "I'll go," because it wasn't like I was setting the classroom on fire either, you know, <laughs> with my participation. So, so I went, and was, there was four, five of us, four guys from the neighborhood. It was an unusually hot day for May. The sun was beating down. The Phillies have since moved to playing in the vet in South Philadelphia. I'm up at the 700 level, the top of the stadium, drinking that cheap, watered down beer. The sun's beating down on me, and I'm getting trash. And I said, You know what? I said, I'm going to run down to the field and meet one of the players. (laughs) And they say, Okay, Bobby. And they kind of shrugged me off because another nickname I had, besides Crazy Coil, was Bullshit Bob. I was going to say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I did that. I didn't do nothing. I drank and made stories. I bet you I did. But. I had worked my way down. They had a, a picnic area at that time. I walked my way down the old picnic area and I jumped over a fence. I ran out to right field, and the San Diego Padres were in town. And Dave Winfield was playing right field for the Padres. And I'm running around, and I go out and shake his hand. I said, "Hi, Dave. How you doing?" He looked at me. He said, "Brother, he said, what are you doing out here?" And from behind him, I saw the guards coming. I said, "Dave, I gotta go now." (Laughter) So I started running towards the infield, and I went to slide into second base. And as, as I was running towards the infield, there was more guards coming from the third base side. And if I knew if I slid into the base, I'd get caught. So I turned around, and I started going towards first base. And I was as close as John and I right now to the guard, and I'm walking to give myself up. At the last second, I dinked the guy, and I ran out in the outfield. And I'm running around like a screwball. It seems like about 10 minutes, but it's probably closer, like two or three, right? Up at the scoreboard, uh, uh, up at right center field, they put Mr. Excitement, you know? I'm running around, but then I got nowhere to go. Like the, it's, I'm, I'm drunk. I'm about to get sick. I'm out of breath. defense is 12 feet high. Like I'm cornered. I got nowhere to go. So I finally stopped. I just like, wait in right field. I'm just, just standing out there. And the guards come out to me, and they were taking me off the field. I got a standing ovation from 37,000 people. <laughs> it was incredible. Now, now, I knew I was going to get a beating from the guards. That's okay. They could have beat on me all day long because that standing ovation, but not only that, I got four witnesses, guys from my neighborhood. See, I was the type, I, would go, I couldn't even make a story up like that, and I made up some whoppers. But, you know, I got four witnesses. I knew if I went back to the neighborhood, I could drink all week on that story, you know. These guards were going to pump. me. Uh, I know they were going to thump me pretty good. I, you know, I deserved it. You know, I made them look kind of dumb. And just then a Philadelphia police lieutenant showed up. He said, what's the matter with you? He said, are you drunk? Are you high? I said, no, I'm just happy. just happy to be here. <laughs> He said, Well, you better get your happy ass out of that stadium. (laughs) So not only did he save me from getting beaten, but he saved me from getting arrested, because that was important. Because them civil service exams I took, like one of them panned out, and a couple months later I got hired by the Philadelphia Police Department. (laughs) (laughs) They was hiring anybody back (laughs) in. You know, was
1: nuts. (laughs)
0: I got hired, uh, we had a mayor by the name of Frank Rizzo, former cop himself, there was 8,500 of us, uh, we were like a gang with badges, and, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't even old enough to drink, uh, the drinking age in Pennsylvania has always been 21, uh, at that time when I was a kid, the drinking age over in in Jersey was 18, and where I lived in Philly, I could be in Jersey quicker than I could be in other parts of Philadelphia, so we used to go over the bridge, you know, and, uh, do our thing, but, uh, once I got on the job, I can go wherever I want, you know, the badge got me anywhere, and, uh, I spent my first 10 years in North Philadelphia. And I saw the ravages of alcoholism and drug addiction day in, day out. And at the end of the tour, I would go out the guys with the squad and drink. And I would see things on the job that bothered me. But I couldn't tell my co-workers that because I didn't, I didn't want to be thought less than. I wanted to be one of the boys. To the point where I even engaged in behaviors in my gut that I knew was wrong. You know, again, by the values instilled in me. And I just knew that this was wrong behavior. And I did it anyway because the need for me to be accepted by you outweighed anything else. You know, and so I just didn't care. You know? And, uh... Man, the writing was on the wall quickly for me, man. It, you know, everyone figured out last guy to figure it out. And, you know, that's the way it goes, you know. I'm <clears> at <throat> a family function one day. My uncle uh, was there. My uncle, he was a supervisor on the job, you know. And uh, he pulled me off to the side. He said, you know what? I'm hearing stories about you, Bobby. You're going to get yourself in a jackpot. You better take it easy. In one ear and out the other. I show up at work one day. My supervisor, my immediate supervisor, he pulled me off. He said, you know what, kid? You're smart. and You're going to go places. That booze is going to mess you up. One ear, and not the other. A couple years later, on two separate occasions, I ran into that uncle and and that supervisor in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I realized at that point they were trying to 12-step me. But I remember talking to my uncle. I said, Jimmy, how come you didn't tell me? He just smiled. He said, Bobby, I told you. He said, you just weren't ready yet. And it just goes to show you that all the drinking and all the behaviors that went with it was necessary for me to hit my bottom. Because it wasn't until I figured out that I knew that I could do something about it. I made my very first Alcoholics synonymous meeting in 1979. <coughs> I don't tell people I went out because I really never came in, but I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> I showed up at work one day and one of my co-workers was drunk. And on the job, we, we had an EAP unit. And part of the EAP unit, they had an AA group. It was called the 369 group. It was, uh, it was like for cops and, and sworn personnel. So uh, I show up at work and uh, the supervisor said, take this guy up to the unit. This guy was trashed. So I'm driving, you know, this, there was a little house in a park. It's called tri- uh, 369. And I'm coming down the dry- driveway, and there was a guy sitting on the porch. His name was Eddie N. I I clears the bell. Off. And I pull up. I said, Eddie, I said, I'm dropping this guy off. I'll be back at 4 o'clock to pick him up. He's detailed here for the day. He looked me dead in the eye. I said, kid, do you want to come in? I said, no, I don't. I was insulted that he even asked me. Because I know what alcoholics were. Alcoholics was those poor people I was dealing in when day in, day out. I was an alcoholic. It was you married guys, you older guys, you guys with three heads, you know. I, I was a beer drinker, and there was no way that you could drink uh, be an alcoholic by drinking beer. And the only time I drank hard liquor was like on St. Patty's Day or New Year's Day or Pay Day. But I was a, <laughs> <coughs> I was a beer drinker, and, you know... It was funny because I got sober a few years later and Eddie was one of the first guys I saw in my first outside meeting. And as soon as I came in, he just smiled and he said, okay, you finally came around. And again, it was just goes to show you that all the drinking, all the behaviors that went with it were necessary for me to catch my attention. I was 24 years old and I shot and killed a 15-year-old kid in line of work. It was just a terrible situation. I couldn't be avoided. And a lot of people offered help. uh, Help was extended to me and I rejected everybody. I used it as an excuse to crawl in a bottle and that's what I did for the next three years. I wound up getting sober when I was 27. Uh, my drinking took me to a lot of my nevers, and one of those nevers is the use of other substances. I, I wound up getting promoted and transferred, and I was in this uh, uh, position uh, where I thought that I needed to do other substances. And I, I was drinking at the time, so my judgment was impaired, and I got involved in other substances. My use of other substances is very short. It lasted about 17 months. It, it caused a great deal of harm to many people. and. Uh, That's where drinking took me, and I think out of uh, respect to the fifth tradition, that's really all all I need to talk about that stuff. Like, you get the picture, it was ugly. So, uh, I'm sitting home from work one day, and there was an article in the paper, and it said, alcohol problems, drug problems, depression, thoughts of suicide, marital problems. I was four out of five. (laughs) I was single. Right, and I'm sure I'm sure if if I was married I'd been batting a thousand and they talk about the moment of clarity or sanity, as soon as it came it quickly left. But I cut it out and I stuck it in my wallet and I continued on drinking. It was uh, Memorial Day weekend, nineteen eighty eight, I'm sitting in this bar, uh, guys from my squad were in there, were just pounding them away. And one of the guys I was with, he said, uh, Bobby he said, I'm gonna go home. And I don't know why he, like it caught the next day. He had something to do, but he, for whatever reason he needed to leave. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a ride home because I didn't think I was as drunk as he was. He thought it was a good idea. So we get in my car, and I'm driving out the street, and, uh, Poplar Street, and, uh, I was always a show-off. Always an arrogant kid, from the ki- uh, from the start I always was. So I decided I was gonna show off the, this driving skill. So I, I thought I was an incredible driver, especially when I drove city vehicles, you know, sidewalks and things like that, I just didn't care. And, uh, about three blocks away, there's a kid on a bike, and he was riding towards us, and I decided, you know, I was gonna play chicken with this kid, scare him, chase him up the curb, or whatever the case may be. And uh, this guy, uh, I don't know if he's saying anything, cause I'm drunk, you know, and unfortunately, uh, as we got closer, uh, we, at the same, at the last moment, we turned in the same direction. I ran this kid over. As he lied, bleeding on the hood of my car, I got out of my car. With my nightstick I was going to beat this kid with the, my nightstick because I thought he was milking me for an insurance claim. The guy would prevent me from doing this. I took this kid off the hood of my car, threw him off to the side of the street like a piece of trash. I pulled this crumpled bicycle from underneath the uh, the bottom of my car and threw that off to the side of the street like a piece of trash. I drove back to the bar. I made a remark. I scored ten points and I continued on drinking. When I came to it the next day, I realized I was, I was in serious, serious trouble. But I didn't think anybody would help me because I was such a creep. I used and abused everybody I came in contact with. You know, that story I talk about for running on the field. You know, I tell that story for a couple of different reasons. One, it's true. <laughs> Secondly, it's the only funny story I got because I wasn't a funny dude. You know, uh, I I wasn't a lover. I wasn't an athlete. I was none of that stuff. I was a lying, thieving, stinking, falling down, violent, drunk. And if I hung around you, you had something I wanted. I used and abused every person I came in contact with. I was an ugly, nasty human being. You know. And uh, I didn't know what to do. Because uh, I didn't think anybody would help me because I was such a creep, you know? So I got a bottle of liquor, a case of beer, and some other substances, and I checked in the hotel with the intention to consume all this stuff to build up the courage and my life. And three days later, they're knocking on the hotel to kick me out. And uh, I didn't know what to do. And at this point, I couldn't shoot myself because I was suspended from my job. I no longer had access to my weapon. So I walked over to the window, and I was going to jump out the window. And I went over and I opened up the window. I was on the fifth floor. I remember I was scared of heights
1: <laughs>
0: I made 23 jumps And here I was, never overcame my fear of heights You know uh, It was nuts So I went into the bedroom And I filled the bathtub up with water And I had a blow dryer And I was going to pull the blow dryer into the tub To make it appear an accidental electrocution But every time I would pull the blow dryer into the tub It would come unplugged <laughs> I got like I got about four and a half short on cord So I'm laying in I'm trying to plug it in You know and, and it's like a scene Out of that Woody Allen movie Where he couldn't even kill himself You know so the only other tool that I had left was my car. So I took one last spin through my neighborhood. I started up at the Falls Bridge and I come down the East River Drive, uh, which is a winding road along the Schuylkill River in Philadelphia. And I come down the East River Drive and I decided I was gonna end my life in an automobile accident. And it, this is like a Wednesday, it's a weekday. It's like a Tuesday or uh, probably a Wednesday or Thursday and, and uh, about 10 o'clock in the morning. And that was important because this is a heavily traveled road, especially during rush hour. So there was very little traffic. So I'm coming down the road and uh, I, I want to end my life. And I decided I would go into oncoming traffic, but then something hit me emotionally, and I realized I didn't want to hurt anybody else. You know, why go into oncoming traffic and take somebody else out? So I decided I would wrap myself around a tree. And at this point, I just started losing it, man. I'm crying. Uh, you know, I'm emotionally wrecked. I'm cooked. You know, I'm, you know, I'm just flying along. And I'm surprised I didn't get in an accident. But I now know my higher power is looking out after me, but I didn't realize it then. I pulled over at the end of Boathouse at the uh, at the end of Houston Drive, and that's Boathouse Row. And I sat behind the wheel of my car and I cried like a baby for about ten minutes. And I reached into my wallet and I cl- pulled out that that article that I clipped out of the news several weeks before. And the phone number that was there, I went in, It's no longer there, but at the end of Boathouse Row is one of those old glass and closed phone booths. And I went in and I dialed that phone number up. And the woman who answered the phone i spoke to this woman like i spoke to no one in my life before i told her the truth i figured she didn't know me from a can of paint i could always hang up but once i just started talking man everything came out and i just couldn't stop and god bless her man she she sat patiently you know and i guess when i came up for air she said listen she said why don't you drive over to Hanuman hospital and somebody would be waiting to talk to you That's okay so i got my cards i took a spin it's about only five blocks away you no know, good and Vine. I drive over at Hahnemann Hospital, and they're waiting for me. And they admitted me to the 10th floor, black psychiatric unit. And I spent about three days there. and They just get me stabilized a little bit. From there, I was transferred to the VA, <coughs> the VA hospital out in West Philadelphia, 38th of Woodland. And I spent about six weeks in their flight deck. And from there, I got transferred to the, to the VA hospital out in Coatesville. And I spent a number of weeks in their flight deck before they put me into an alcohol and drug ward. When I pulled over that day and called that phone number up, Alcoholics Anonymous was the furthest thing from my mind. I did not think I had a problem with booze. I thought maybe it was my short use of other substances. Maybe I got this mental illness. I inherited this from my mother. Maybe I got this stress stuff they're talking about. I got this from my job. I got this from the the service. You know, maybe it's the fact that I'm a mummer. It's the neighborhood I live in. It's all this other stuff. But it couldn't be, it couldn't be booze because I was only a beer drinker, you know. And uh, it was nuts. So I got put in the alcohol and drug ward at the VA hospital out in Coatesville. I'm there, I don't know, about maybe an hour and a half. And I come across in the day room. And you got these 12 steps of these 12 traditions, the window shades up on the wall. I go up to the steps. I zip through them. I got four or five of them done. I see the amends. I see the amends. I say, this are That doesn't apply to me. You know, but that's nuts. But what happened later that night, two men came up. And I would later find out that they were part of the treatment facility committee. And they came up to do a commitment. The moment that the speaker said something about his background that I didn't like, couldn't identify with it, just didn't relate to I immediately tuned him out. See, I was too busy listening to the messenger and not the message. Now I got a little time under my belt, you know, and I'm looking around. I see a lot of these guys are heavily into drugs. That wasn't my deal. Most of these guys are divorced. That wasn't my deal. Probably the fact that I was never married had something to do with that. A lot of these guys were arrested. That wasn't my deal either, probably because of my job uh, was a big enabler. Looking for the differences and not the similarities. But what bothered me the most, which really set me off was at the end of the meeting, everyone got in a circle and said the Lord's Prayer. If this is what you people were about, then I did not want nothing to do with you. And I broke away from the group. I would not say the prayer. I hated God. And I know there's strong words, but, you know, I just hated God. And uh, the reason I did, my mom was a fundamentalist with the church, you know, candles, pictures, radio programs, things like that. She thought she could speak in tongues, you know, all that stuff. In and out of nutwoods, you know, uh, abuse and pills. I was 15 years old. I came home from school one day. I'm in my house for about 10, 15 minutes, and it's just kind of strange. So I, you know, I go upstairs. And I come across my mother. My mother had slid her wrist. I didn't remember. She looked up at me. She said, Bobby, help me. And I looked down at her. said, good for you. And I walked out of the house, and I got an older guy to get, go to the steak store and get me some wine. And I stayed out that day, and I drank the bottle of wine. And I came home later that night. And my father had told me what happened. I said, oh, yeah, how about that? That happened when I was 15. I got sober when I was 27, that's 12 years of hate, and it'd be a couple more years before I dealt with this issue. If this is what you people are about, then I don't want nothing to do with you. I remember when I would pull cars off, and it was very rare because I worked in a very high crime area, I got a lot of things to do, so, but you really needed to do something to catch my attention. But I remember I would come up to cars and they would have bumper stickers on them, live and let live. One day at a time, i said, oh, I got one of these Jesus freaks, you know, (laughs) and I'd come up. And it would give me some sort of story. I'm going to meet, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, right, you are. Here you go." And I would hammer them. But you know, people, uh, I just bury them. But whenever I came across people like that, that they just really, I, I just, I didn't want nothing to do. And, and these were decent people. I start, uh, you know, I had a nurse come up to me at the VA hospital, and. The, and she must have been an Allen and And I don't say that to get a laugh because she was a uh, really a nice, nice woman who saw through all my stuff. You know, all that stuff was a defense mechanism, you know. And she came up to me. She said, you know what, the only way you're going to make it, you're going to need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I need to tell you that's the best piece of advice I got. You know, the VA hospital helped me a lot with a lot of things I had going on. But going to Alcoholics Anonymous is where I get my recovery. And I went to AA every single day. I got there late. I would leave early. I don't drink coffee, so I don't make it. I don't smoke cigarettes, so I don't empty any ashtrays. If I ever walked into a big book meeting or step meeting that was strictly by accident, I had something more important to do, I would leave it to break. God forbid a tradition meeting, rules. Now, I need to tell you, my line of work, man, we don't like to follow them, but we love to enforce them. They're for everybody else. You know? So I don't have to do with rules either. you know. And uh, the moment that the speaker said something about his background that I didn't like, couldn't identify with, I was just immediately tuning him out. Too busy listening to the messenger, and not the message. But I made meetings. And I made meetings two or three times a day, depending on what, what shift I was working, I made meetings. And I was crazy as a bed bug. Only time I got my hand up was probably take a shot at somebody. I was sober about nine months, and I'm sitting in this bar, because they sell real good roast beef, right? You know, <laughs> great roast beef. I'm sitting there, I'm drinking seltzer out of a rock glass. Guys from my neighborhood came in, they start breaking my stones, one thing to like another. I just, I oh, forget about it. So I stood up, and I just punched this guy right in the face with the mug. Man, I cut him severely, blood like a pig. And the cops who handled the job, they came up and said, man, what's with you? you know? And they know me. And they cut me break and they let me go. And that's where I learned my lessons about people, places, and things. Well, I've since found a place that sells real good roast beef without being in that type of environment. <laughs> but the deal is, the truth why I was really there, and I could have told you any number of reasons, the truth was I, I was very successful in my job. I got a lot of publicity, you know, and, uh, because I was not such didn't care, really. And uh, so, but towards the end, I got a lot of negative publicity. I was embarrassed. You know, so I wanted to come back and say, Hey, don't believe the hype. You know, I'm back. Things are cool, you know, all those other things that's all in the past, I'm doing alright. That's why I was there. I was arrogant, you know. But I was crazy. I was celebrating a year, I told my story, I got done speaking, man, it was amazing. Thunderous applause, the the blind could see, the lame walked, it was incredible. <laughs> yeah. You know? They came up and they patted me in the back, said Way to go, Bobby, you're doing so good. I lied during my entire story. I made everything up. You know, I identified myself as an alcoholic because of my group. That's all they want to hear. They didn't want to hear none of that other stuff, you know. Uh, I, I, I gave you all the quotes, you know, to tell you everything you want to hear. But during the course of my story, a bottle of beer appeared in my head. But you guys didn't want to hear that. You want to hear all the lingo. I gave it a lingo. And when he came up and patted him on the back and said, Bobby, you're doing so good, man. I was dying inside. I felt like a creep, you know. Uh, the old timers, man, man, I loved them. Man, did I hate them, you know. I would go, I was nuts. I want to be liked by these guys but I wouldn't want to hang out with them, but I got mad when they invited me out and I wouldn't go with them because uh, I made something else up. But then, oh, it was nuts. I was crazy. In my, first, in my early recovery, my first couple years, I used to go to a lot of go-go bars, right?
1: I, I, I Drank soda.
0: I, I would get my picture taken and I would come to the meetings and pass the pictures around because I, th- I thought the old guys would like them.
1: <laughs>
0: they, they would look at the picture, and they would look at me and they would just shake their head and say, please kid, please keep coming back. And I thought they were being facetious, so I kept coming back. You know, I was, man, I was nuts. Uh, I, I swear to God, I had no idea who John Barleycorn was, you know. I was wondering why everybody was blowing this guy's anonymity. I said, you know, I said, he must be really a tough SOB. Well, when I found out who he was, I felt so stupid. But here I was, I was so damn bright, it damn near killed me, you know. I remember all the, all the men in the group were going on a retreat, and they came up and they kind of tricked me. I was sober just over a year, and, you know, they come up and they asked them questions, and, before you had time to formulate the lie, they said, "Bob, you working this weekend?" And I said, "No." And what I should have said, I should have said, "Why?" But "no" came out first, and I said, "No." They said, "Good, we're going on a retreat this weekend," and uh, you know, and so and we're taking you with us. <laughs> and you know, they signed me up, and I had the money, but they signed me up anyway. So it's like all my excuses there were none at all. And so they, in fact, even I felt like. Uh, Somebody I come, one of my customers, in the course of my day, you know, like they had me in the back seat and there was one on each side of me just in case I bowed <laughs> out. But as we drive in closer to the retreat house, I get a big knot in my stomach because I want to hang out with these guys, but I didn't want to do what these guys did. And I could never tell them about my mom because what would they think of me then? But the need for me to be accepted by these guys outweighed anything else. So here I am doing something in my gut is tearing me up. So I, man, I was just nuts. as crazy as a bed bug. So we get to the retreat, and the closer I get there, the knot's getting bigger. They introduced me to the retreat master. I'm there for about 10, 15 minutes. He just looked at me and smiled. He's my disciplinarian from high school. (laughs) But not only that, but he was also a longtime member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he started talking to me. And he said, that's great, man. And I wanted to know where I was going to meetings, you know, how long I'm sober. He said, you got a sponsor? I said, no, I don't don't have one. See, I'm a pretty bright guy, and he knew it, too. But I didn't tell him, but I was. And I was arrogant, too. But, you know, I, I just, in certain things, I was just, you know, I just did well in certain areas. And so uh, I said, no, I, I didn't have a sponsor because most of my guys in my neighborhood, you know, the sign of success for them was like they get a union card. It didn't matter, carpenter, iron worker, whatever the case <laughs> would be, you know. So, the, I, you know, I'm I just a little bit better than these guys, arrogance, you know. And so uh, he said, I strongly suggest you get a sponsor. So I asked my roommate to be my sponsor, just in case, God forbid, ever again, I'd be questioned. People, uh, you've got a sponsor? I said, yeah, there he goes, right there. And I would go to AA meetings, and he would wave to me. He said, Bobby, I still got that same phone number. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll give you a call. I never called him. You know what I used to do? I said, you won't believe this guy. He got me doing this. He got me doing that. I made it all up. It was nothing. He didn't do any of that stuff. He put the hand of help, the hand of AA out there, and I'm the one who slapped it away. Man, I was nuts. I was sober 23 months. Uh, I beat another man with a baseball bat. I forget what step I was working that day, but man, I was I was crazy. I would go to meetings and share stuff on the floor and then go to the men's room or go get something to drink and come back to the seat next to me would be empty. People would be sitting on the other side of the room to get away from me. No one asked me to be their sponsor. No one wondered what the hell I had. I didn't carry the message. I carried the disease. Stone Cold Sober in the Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was dying from untreated alcoholism. I lied, I stole, I cheated. I prayed on a new woman. I did everything wrong you could do with AA. I just didn't pick up a drink. And when I would share these crazy stories on the floor, people pat me in the back and say, that's okay, Bobby, just don't drink. And I took that as well. I could do whatever the hell I wanted, just not drink. And I now know that's not the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. People say, just don't drink and go to a meeting. Again, I'm a pretty bright guy. If I could just not drink, why do I need to go to a meeting? I could just cut that right out, you know. But you know what? I The way I was living... I, I just couldn't live like that anymore, you know. And it was the same feeling I had two years before, but two years before, I'm loaded with drugs and alcohol. Here I am, stone-cold sober, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I went to eat my gun. Safe to assume my life was unmanageable. There was a guy from my neighborhood, he was sober for a few years, I, seen him in, I saw him in the meetings, he made a lot of meetings, but he also lived in my neighborhood, and I saw it out there. You know, I saw he was for real. His nickname was Troubles. It was a hard-earned nickname. No one ever called him Troubles to his face, though, because he was a rough dude. Uh, So I seen him in a meeting one time. I went up to him afterwards. I said, Bobby, I need some help. I said, would you be my sponsor? He looked me dead in the eye. I said, Bobby, I've been watching these past couple years. I'm sticking my chest out. I said, yeah, this guy likes me. He said, I need to tell you. He said, you're full of shit. (laughs) And that's not the response I'm looking for. He said, said, I'm going to be your sponsor under certain conditions. Hey, you're going to call me every single day. You're going to go to one big book meeting a week. You're going to go to a step meeting a week. You're going to go to a men's meeting. You're going to get yourself a coffee commitment. And you're going to leave them damn women alone. And I'm saying to myself, like, who's he talking to? (laughs) I'm sober 25 months. I'm selling the grapevines, you know. (laughs) So what I did do, I said, okay. and, And... and we talked there after the meeting, took me back to his house. And that's the night that I did the first three steps. Like I said, I went to stick a gun of my... I knew I was powerless over alcohol. You know, I really... I knew that. Uh, my life was certainly unmanageable. I went to eat my gun. If that was the problem, the solution had to be a power greater myself. And regardless of my resentment towards God, I knew something was working. Because I saw people... I hated everybody. But you know who I hated the most? I hated the guys behind me, coming in after me. How dare they get better before me? Because I'm caught up on the seniority list. Now, true story, I'm not proud of it. But true story. My home group, we got a cork board, first name, last initial, date, a month, and how many years you celebrate, An anniversary of the month. Joey ate three years, Bobby, see, two years. If Joey went out, I took pleasure in that. I said, yeah, he's out, I move up. I, I swear to God, I, I, I was just nuts. I would calculate, I'm sober 15 months, and this kid got 18, he went out, said, he's out, I'm up. That was just nuts. So, uh, I hated everybody, but these guys behind me who were getting well, like these other guys, I, I had difficulty believing. You know, when I first got out of the VA hospital, uh, and I see these people, and they had like eight, nine years, and they're talking about their lives, I found it hard to believe because I only knew them as AAs, you know, and, and I could never picture them as they were telling their stories, and then I thought, well, you know what, they're probably embellishing a little bit because we tend to do that. But then I saw these guys behind me. And I know these were crazy as bedbugs. These guys was coming in. And they were getting better right in front of me. You know? They start learning to speak complete sentences and getting their teeth fixed and driver's license and you know, <laughs> relationships. And, and I see it happening in front of me. So I knew that there was a higher power. I really did. I just needed to get over my resentment. You know, And uh, it, it would take some time. But, but I would. You know? I took a leap of faith and uh, I did. You know, uh, So I, I believed. I, I knew there was something working. And the third step, we did the third step prayer together on our knees. And my sponsor said, Bobby, there's a diff- difference between making a decision and making a commitment, you know. And I made a commitment that I was going to go to any to get sober, to be an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because uh, here I was walking around for 25, 26 months, you know. I had my foot in the pool, but I wasn't all the way in. And I dove in, you know. And a lot of the things, the reason I didn't want to dive in was because I had a lot of fears, you know. Man, my life was consumed by fear. And uh, people doing the right thing intimidated me. You know, I I would make stories up about these guys, but you know what? They were about doing the right thing. I never had the courage to do the right thing. I hid behind a bottle. I hid behind my badge. I hid behind everything. And uh, my life got better. You know, I had a little faith. I did some action. My life got better. I didn't want to do one of these inventories. You know, you go to meetings and people say, whoa, easy does it. Don't want to get well too soon. (laughs) And all this other stuff. And it's amazing because any other disease you want to get well quickly. But, whoa. Keep it simple, and uh, and I was doing all it. And you know what? Our slogans say definitely serve a purpose. But you know, I I was twisting them around. I didn't want to do one of these inventories, and you know, because I hear people, oh, you know, you may go out. I was on my way out without doing one. What the hell did I have to lose? I went to eat my gun. I mean, you can't go any further out than that. I did my inventory. Wasn't that bad? Everything I wrote down, I did. No secrets the next one was a scary step because I had to share it with my sponsor so I'm a, I'm a pretty bright guy I call my sponsor up I said, "Bobby, yes, I'm going to go on a retreat this week and do that first step with that priest and he said man that's great he said when you get done stop by my house you do it with me <laughs> <laughs> and you know how sponsors can be sometimes like, you're like what are you deaf you hear and it, but they pick up on those telepathic messages he said yeah bye, yes, I heard you he said you hear me he said when you get done you come by my house and before I could say anything and he explained himself and he, man he was a, he was an incredible man he helped me tremendously he said, Bobby, the reason being, if I'm going to help you with your behaviors, your character defects, he said, I think I need to know what they are. And the truth is, the reason I wanted to go to a priest is it wasn't just because I had like God down his resentment. It was still there. It, like the resentment didn't go away. I was afraid that some of the things in my uh, inventory I was embarrassed about. And I thought my sponsor would ridicule me. He would pass judgment on me or even worse, he would take things that I told him and break the confidence and tell other people. That's the sole reason I wanted to go to that priest It was no other reason at all There was no spiritual enrichment, anything at all I never did that fifth step with a priest I did it with my sponsor And those fears I had were unfounded He didn't do any tons of at things He didn't pass judgment He didn't ridicule me And to the best of my knowledge He never told anybody else In fact, you know what he did? He shared some of his stuff with me Which took away the terminal uniqueness That I thought that I was the only guy to do certain things And I'll be forever grateful for him for doing that, you know Six and seven character defects I didn't know what these were i knew when i drank i was a character but the truth was when i did my inventory i found out that i had no character whatsoever you couldn't rely on me i wasn't dependable i was a liar thief and a cheat i cared about me you know i wasn't a friend i wasn't a brother i wasn't a son it was none of that stuff you know i found out a lot about that stuff the sixth step you know I was, you know i was you know i was willing and if i didn't have the willingness i could pray and the seventh step well that's what it was it was a prayer and my sponsor said bobby it's much more in prayer you need to put legs in those prayers i mean i could pray all day long god help me be patient help me be patient. And then during the course of my day, I come across somebody and I choose we all know it's nothing but anger dressed up. Also referred to as language of the Irish, you know. But, uh, but if I lash out in sarcasm, you know, that prayer for honesty goes out the window. Or I could pray, God, help me be patient, help me be patient. At the end of this meeting, I see someone's wild and I do one of these things with my foot. <laughs> you know, that prayer goes out the window. He says, you need to put legs in those prayers, Bobby. God will do for you what you can't do for yourself. The A step, because I didn't burn my fourth step during my fifth step, my A step was halfway done. And I needed to put more names down. I was one of these guys, you know, I didn't harm anybody but myself. Right there would have been a tip-off. I never did my inventory because I harmed everybody I came in contact with, especially my loved ones. The closer you were to me, unfortunately, the more hurt you were, you know. Nine-step direct demands. No phone calls, no letters because I didn't rob you or beat you with a bat through the mail or over the phone. <laughs> and when I want to take, take those measures, you know, the truth is, you know, for me, I can make up, oh, he lives out of town, he does this and that. The truth is I'm probably afraid. You know, my sponsor said direct amends. Now, sometimes those things are appropriate when, you know, but he said, except when to do so would injure them or others. He said, You ain't other, Bobby. You need to face these people. You know, and I'd like to share two experiences on the next step. I'm at a uh, meeting in uh, North Philadelphia. I live in South Philadelphia. I'm in a meeting in North Philadelphia. And there is that. I'm sitting at the table about to speak, and a guy comes down the steps. This is probably about nine, ten years ago. I have not seen this guy since 1977, this man who walked down the steps. He was not on my A-step list, not for any reason. The only reason was I just plain forgot, you know, out of sight, out of mind, you know. He walked down the steps. I recognized him immediately. I'll tell you what I used to do. I used to publicly humiliate this guy to make myself look like a tough guy. I'm not a tough guy. I never was, but I was, the, you know... It was amazing because I, I used to like when guys got bullied. I used to pick up for him. I used to get beat up all the time because I pick up for these guys and you know. So, but uh, this particular guy, for some reason, I had words with him in a bar. He never did nothing. From that point on, I used to publicly humiliate him, verbal abuse. One day I slapped slapped him, and then one day I, I spit on him. I mean, what worse thing can you do to a human being? You talk about like the other degre- uh, degradation. I spat on this guy, you know, and uh, so I recognized him, but he didn't recognize me. So I get introduced to speak. I stand up. I look this guy dead in the eye. He said, my name is Bobby Coyle, and I'm an alcoholic. Now, I need to tell you why I use my full name. These traditions, I love the traditions, you know. The traditions are to the group, but the steps are to the individuals. But it's top secret stuff, like you need your security clearance to talk about this stuff. (laughs) A lot of these traditions are misunderstood, especially this 11th tradition, you know. The 11th tradition is real clear. You will never see me on television. You won't hear my full name, which is Robert Ignatius Benedict Coyle III, on the radio, <laughs> or you won't see my picture and full name in the newspaper. Identify myself as an alcohol, as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the eleventh tradition: personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. This is not a secret society. All of a sudden, we get sober, we become like the mafia, right? We get all these nicknames. There's Red Sweater Jerry and Bucktooth Mary and Frank the Fox <laughs> and Pepsi George and all this other stuff. It's crazy. Everybody in my neighborhood knew I was a drunk. It was those little telltale signs. They come out and they catch me, I'd be urinating on their car, you know. (laughs) My girlfriend threw the clothes out the window. I'm slumped behind the wheel of my car. Everyone knows I'm a stark raven lunatic, but all of a sudden I get sober. God forbid my reputation be taught as you know I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's crazy. (laughs) Dr. Bob said when one drunk is anonymous from another drunk, that is a violation of the 11th tradition. He went on to say that anonymity is spiritually inspired. And f- secrecy is feared and inspired, you know. So that's the deal. Now, I'm very involved in service back home. And I always use my phone name because you're not going to find Bobby C. In the phone book, you know. I mean, God forbid you feel like drinking. Three o'clock in the morning, what are you going to call information? Yeah, I'd like to have red sweater, Jerry's uh, phone number. <laughs> or you go to the hospital and go visit one of these old timers, you know, who are great people these days. And you go, up, yeah, I'm here to see, you know, Bucktooth Mary or Frank the Fox. <laughs> like, you're, you're out of luck, you know. That's the 11th tradition. <laughs> However, I have no right whatsoever to break anybody else's anonymity, you know, and I, I don't do that. I just choose to use my full name, you know, and that, that's, that's my deal. So I looked this guy dead in the eye and said, my name is Bobby Cool. I'm an alcoholic. And as soon as I said my name, he recognized. He started out. And, you know, we sober up. We clean up, you know. And I, when I got done speaking, I used to tell the group what I used to do to this guy, you know. And uh, when I got done, uh, his name was Bob also. And uh, I always say this. His name wasn't, his last name wasn't also. His name also was Bob. I'm not breaking his anonymity. <laughs> but his name was Bob. And uh, what I told the group was that I used to tell what I used to do to this guy. You know what? And he came up and he hugged me and he forgave me. And I told him because my sponsor told me, Bobby, he he's making amends is much more than saying I'm sorry. I'm sorry for me with two words that didn't mean squat. He said it's about righting a wrong. And, you know, for me, when if I owe you financial mentor, it's real easy. I go in my pocket. I pay you back or go on terms with you. But what about that emotional damage, the psychological damage we cause people? How do I write that? You know? He said, you become a brother again. You become an employee. You do those decent things. And I told this guy, I said, Bob, I, as long as I stay sober, I hope I, I'm not to treat you or any other human being the way I treated you. And, and I'm really sorry. He hugged me. And he forgave me. Man, it was an incredible experience. So now we start talking, right? And I said, Bob, I said you know, I haven't seen you in years. What you been up to? He said, Bob, I, said, I need to tell you. He said, I'm three years sober. Not Now the arrogance comes true, right? Because I'm very active in my area. And I figured if you're at AA in my area, I must know you. I mean, it's the fourth largest city in the country, but I figured you got to know me, right? (laughs) I don't know him. I I, I live in South Philadelphia. The meeting's in North Philadelphia. He lives in Roxville, which is like Northwest Philadelphia. I said, well, what brings you here? Because I've never been here before, and he was never there before that particular meeting. He said, Bobby, I was slipping through the meeting list, and he said, I just want to go to a different meeting tonight. For For some reason, this meeting jumped out at me. Now, I need to tell you, we have 1,600 meetings a week. We have a pretty thick meeting directory. This guy said that that meeting jumped out at him that night. I am a firm believer that my God put that guy in my path that night. And I had two options: I could do what I did, made amends, or I could do what I used to do many times. When you came up and called me on something, I said, "Whoa, boys, well, you got me confused. You're talking about my brother Brian, because when you get when you get nine people in a short period of time, we all look alike. There's a strong resemblance. I don't know, I don't know which one. I know you're a coil. I don't know which one you are. You got my brother. You're not me. So, but what I did, I made amends to this guy, and he forgave me, and it was an incredible experience. Flip side of that, I was at the, my uh, home group for a while was the Stephenson's group in Philadelphia. I was at a business meeting one day, I made a motion, it was definitely for the betterment of AA since I made it, and I knew it was.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, and, uh, you know, there, there was discussion. And leading the discussion opposing my motion was my friend Freddie. Now, I, I was amazed by this. Because, like, I grew up in a the neighborhood, there's certain rules, they're unwritten, but they're on those studs, you know, you can't date anyone exes, it doesn't matter, it could be 10, 15 years oh, old, I can't, you went out with Jimmy 10 years ago, I can't see you. There's certain things you just can't do, and one of the things, right, wrong, or indifferent, you always backed your boy. It just, it was the rule, what you did. And here's Freddie, like, leading the opposition, I can't believe it. And my motion, it doesn't even get seconded. I said, how dare he? I Man, I was hot. And I would go to meetings. I would see like four guys be in the room. i say, hi, three of them. I would completely ignore Freddie. You know? And uh, uh, some time passed, and one of my coworkers, I'm at work one day, and a coworker called me up. He said, Bobby, he said Freddie Wheels is outside. He wants to take care of some sort of business. I peeked out the window. I seen him down there in his car. I said, you know what? I said, tell him to take his fat ass down to City Hall to do that. We can't do that here. So a few weeks after that, that same coworker called me up. He was also sober. He said, Bobby, he said Freddie Wheels died last night. And he said the reason I'm calling you is because he always spoke so highly of you. Now here he was a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine. And as God is my judge, I cannot tell you what that motion was about. That's how petty it was. Here he was put in my path numerous, numerous times, and I chose not to make amends to him. You know? And the moment that he said he always spoke so highly of you, I felt like a creep. And I've been praying for Freddie ever since, you know. Many opportunities to make amends to him, I chose not to. Because the nice step says wherever possible, not whenever. Because whenever means time, wherever is placed. And for us, it's never the right time because we're too busy, doesn't it? We're keeping it simple. <laughs> yeah, i get to it later, you know. And, uh, you know, so that's two experiences in the ninth step. One where I took the action, man, I reaped the rewards. The second, I had the opportunity many, many times. I chose not to, and I paid the price, you know. The ten step for me is four through nine on a regular basis. Now, if I'm sitting up here and tell you I do a ten step every day, that's not true. But I'm pretty consistent, you know. But, uh, and I used to say, you know, no one knows but me, but that's not true either. Because when I'm not practicing spiritual principles, I become a nitwit. And should you run across me during the course of my nitwit mode, you're affected <laughs> also. <laughs> just like when I do the right thing, I treat people with dignity and respect. You benefit from that. And just when I'm a nitwit, unfortunately, you be- you reap that also. So, but I'm pretty good with it. You know, I'm fairly consistent. And man, it never fails. Because every time I like to kick back and stay sober on yesterday's sobriety, man, I pay the price. You know, and... uh it, it just amazes me, you know So I, I, I'm, I'm pretty consistent with it Because like in early Recovery You know the old saying You peace, you can't miss what you never had I never had a peace of mind So I never missed it So if I was in a meeting A nice serene meeting Where all these guys are talking all this stuff, I'd get my hand up To share my insanity To get it crazy Because I was comfortable be, Being around goofy people Serene people scared me So but uh, But now I don't like Being in that type of environment I now When I get knocked off the beam I now know what I need to do To get it back on the beam And I like this way of life today You know The 11th step through prayer and meditation. You know, I do that, and it's a deeply personal thing for me, and and I do it on a regular basis. And I may not practice the religion I was raised in, but you know what? I no longer bash the church. It wasn't the Catholic Church's fault. Uh, It wasn't the Air Force's fault. It wasn't the police department's fault. It wasn't my mother's fault. It wasn't the neighborhood I lived in. It wasn't the fact that I was a mama. None of that stuff, man. I found that the problem was me, Bobby Coyle, and I found that out by doing the steps. You know, I was the problem. And you know what, my past, I, there's a lot of things about my past that I'm not proud of. But another thing that the steps did, besides enable me to, you know, remove the, the obsession drink, you know, it enabled me to live with my past. I can't change it. There's some things I wish I could change, but I can't. But with the steps, enabled me to change my attitude about my past. You know. The 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. I had that spiritual awakening. Now I haven't seen any burning bushes or lightning bolts or any of that other stuff. Heard voices from above. In fact, it's been a number of years since I heard any voices at all. But, uh, <laughs> but, we tried to carry this message. That's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. I hear some messages, and I look up the slogans and make sure I'm in an AA meeting sometime. I hear some crazy stuff. But then I gotta remember that word try. You know, Bobby used to tell me all the time, he said, Bobby, try. Because I went through my evangelical stage. You know, I got hot, you know, I got fought, fired, and you know, say, hey, this, this, I get done. Right here in the book, I got done. I want to backhand you with it to make sure it sunk in, you know. <laughs> but, you know, but most importantly is to practice these principles in all my affairs. The meetings back home are an hour and a half a day. But what about the 22 and a half hours that I'm not in the AA meeting? What about the time on my job or the time in my neighborhood or things like that? You know, that's where it's important for me to practice these principles, you know. I could be real good in AA and sound like the second coming of Bill and quote stuff and do a lot of crazy stuff. But what am I doing in the neighborhood, you know? Am I am I a member of my community? Am I a decent? Am I giving an honest day's work at, uh, at work? You know, am I treating people with dignity and respect? And for the most part, I do that, you know. My father called me a few years ago uh, at my... Uh, a good man. My father was a decent man. You know, I was embarrassed about my father growing up. I remember in the kid, you know, in the neighborhood, like we lived in a like a pretty wild neighborhood. A lot of my friends, I, I said their father were authors. They wrote numbers and books and things like that. My dad was a decent guy. My dad was a decent guy. Things fell off the back of trucks in my neighborhood a lot. Uh, I could never bring that stuff home. But my father was a man of principle and conviction and I was always embarrassed about him as a kid because I thought he was square and you know all this sort of stuff. And the older I get, the, the closer I get with him, I just find out that's what he is. He's a man of principle and conviction. You know, he didn't run on my mom. He stood by her. Uh, he, he treated us. He sacrificed and sent us to school. He's just an amazing guy. And I said, You know what, man, if I grow up to be half the guy my dad is, then I'd be a pretty lucky dude. You know? But my father called me a few years ago. He said, Bobby, he said, Joe, Joe lives right across the street. He said, Joe, what's your phone number? He said, Can I give it to you? I said, Sure, dad. I said, If anyone ever calls. You know, because if you look in the phone book, he's Robert Ignatius Coil Jr. <laughs> you know? So there's not many of us. But I said, Yeah, people call you by mistake. And he does. People call, like, from out of town. They go through directory assistance and they call my dad and they say, Oh, your son, you know, cop AA. Oh, and that's my son. You know, here's his phone number. I said, Give my number to anybody. So he gives the number to Joe. Joe called me up. Now I need to tell you, Joe owned the toilet bar on the corner. And in my neighborhood there was a tap room on every corner, you know. But th- this th- this joint was definitely the toilet. The fact that you came in and so said, Where's the toilet? So you're standing in it. <laughs> yeah. Joe towards the end of my drinking did not allow me near the toilet. But he said, Bobby, you can't come in here. I know what you do for a living. I know your family for years. I don't care if you come in my bar and he used some colourful language what he would do. Sorry, right, Joe, I just found another place to drink. Because that's the type of guy that I was. And towards the end of my drinking, people wouldn't even hang out with me. I swear to God, I couldn't even, I visualized this, I couldn't even shave towards the end of my drinking. I would get a couple of strokes with the razor, and I visualized this that an evil spirit was going to take a razor and make me cut my throat. You know, uh, people wouldn't hang out with me, and I would call them up, and they'd make up stories oh, bah, I can't do this, I can't do that, you know, I'm broke. I said, that's okay, I got money. And when people say, when you say that, and people say, no, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, you know how bad you are. So Joe had this toilet of a bar, does, doesn't let me near it, uh, under the threat of bodily harm. He called me up. He said, Bobby, you still go to the MA meetings? And Joe knew I did because my neighborhood bad news travels quickly. You know, people get on the drums. <laughs> so he knew. I said, yeah, Joe, I, I do. He says, I was wondering, and he doesn't know nothing about our folks and He says, I was wondering if you could help me. See, his, uh, his brother, Joe's brother and sister-in-law were killed uh, years before that. They had uh, four or five kids he killed in an automobile accident, and Joe took his nephews and nieces and raised them like their own. He said, My nephew, Jimmy, 17 years old, just getting out of treatment. I was wondering if you could take him to an AA meeting. Now, here was a guy 10 years before threatening me with bodily harm if I went near the toilet of a bar that he owned. And here he's allowed to take me, his nephew, to an AA meeting. That's a reward of the program, you know? Jimmy's sober eight years today in alcohol us. And it's nothing I did because I gave Jimmy the same message that I gave other men who unfortunately aren't alive today, you know. And that's the twelfth step. I have a responsibility. In fact, we even have a statement: when anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of aid to always be there, and for that, I'm responsible. And I can't sugarcoat it, you know. And you know, and, and you hear a lot of mix, mixed messages, and I can't compromise the message of Alcoholics Anonymous in order for you to like me. See, I did that when I drank; I compromised everything, whatever values and convictions I had, you know. But I can now carry the message and hit people right between the eyes. Do so with love and respect, but you still hit them between the eyes. Say, hey, this is what we do. You hear people say, oh, don't talk about God through newcomer because you're going to scare him." Well, if they're lucky, I'm going to chase their ass right back here because you got nowhere else to go. Because if I don't mention the higher power and anything else, I'm claiming credit for something that, that, that I can't. Because left to my own devices, I'm a liar, thief, and a cheat. That's what type of guy that I am. A higher power helped me tremendously by following these principles. Men help me, you know. So, uh, Jimmy's sober today, man. It's fantastic, you know. I got involved in service. I learned about the traditions. And I love the steps, like I said earlier. But I love the traditions. The traditions are the groups what the steps into the individuals. And you hear sometimes steps are how it works and traditions are why it works. And I got involved in service. And I said, because in in Philadelphia, you know, we say it's a city of neighborhoods. Uh, The reason being, because it's a very segregated city. And I'm not even talking racially, even among the ethnics. Like, you couldn't leave your neighborhood. uh, uh, In in Philly, we used to say, what parish are you from? It's a high Catholic population. And once you told us what parish you're from, I, I, I could peg your ethnic background, your socioeconomic status. I mean, that's just the way it was. And you didn't go out of your neighborhood because, you know, it was just... It's a very territorial, very parochial city. So, but now in the AA, I start going to other parts of Philadelphia. I would go to West Philadelphia. I would go up to North Philly, I would go to Center City. And uh, the very first time I went to an AA meeting outside my neighborhood, I said, whoa, they're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I found out they're not doing it wrong. They're just doing it differently. And then I got involved in service. I start going to other places. And then these conventions I go. I tell you, I go to, it's in my experience, most places I go to open up the meeting with the Serenity Prayer, man, that confuses the hell out of me. Because back home, we end with the Serenity Prayer. You know, and I go to a lot of places, they mention their sobriety date, and back home we never do it. In fact, the only time we ever mention it is for your anniversary. But just in case you're curious, uh, my anniversary date is June 2nd of 1988. Uh, which also happened to be, believe it or not, uh, it took me a little time to figure it out, it also happened to be my mother's birthday. It's incredible, because I went on a load on Memorial Day weekend, and when I came to, uh, I did the math and figured it out, and I, I was like sober four months when I figured it out, I wound up getting sober on my mom's birthday. You know, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, it's it's. I really believe that it's 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 turned my life around completely. You know, I'm a man of dignity and honor today. You know, and I got that from the old guys in AA. You know, uh, I I referred to the mummer a couple of times. I need to tell you uh, that there's John. here he's from Philadelphia. We served on the steering committee in Philadelphia. Uh, For most of the other people, Mummers is a a New Year's Day parade we do in Philadelphia. And it's the largest continuous parade in the country. And I know Mardi Gras goes over three days. But from Philadelphia, start to finish, the parade is about 13 hours. And, And it's many hundred years old, but it was getting way out of hand. So in 1901, the city decided to organize the mayhem, you know. So, so with this, we're coming up on, I guess, on 102nd, 103rd organized parade, but it's a couple hundred years old. Mummers is taken from Mummus, who was a Greek god of ridicule. Uh, we're not politically correct, we spoof everybody, everything's fair game. Uh, what it is, it's a bunch of men in sequins, feathers, and makeup, and we dance in the street, and it's just a blast. Uh, we make the, we make the Mardi Gras look like a Mormon convention. It's just, <laughs> incredible. Now I'm a lifelong mummer. And I remember I was at a midnight meeting at the Steppin' Stones. It was, uh, it was almost uh, 13 years ago. And I'm telling my story. And a kid came up to me afterwards. He said, listen, would you be interested in watching the parade? I said, man, you're out of your mind. People placing things. I got no business being there. He said, you don't understand. He said, we got a group of sober mummers. Now, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we got sober mummers. The name of our brigade is called the 12 Steppers. And uh, the last 12 years, I was able to do something that was a part of my family. Like I said, I'm a third generation a mummer. Last year, I got to march on my 34th Mummers Parade, you know, and I had the privilege of being the captain of the brigade, which is a big high honor. In 1999, our brigade came in first place. We never came close. You know, I, I would get, leave my house on New Year's Day, return home January 4th or 5th, because in your suit, you could drink all day long. Hey, Mummer, come over here, have a drink, you know, but uh, it's just a blast. And the reason I put that out there is because one of my favorite sayings in the big book is we absolutely insist on enjoying life. If the newcomer could see no joy in our existence, they wouldn't want nothing to do with us. Now, obviously, I just paraphrased that last sentence. Bill's a hell of a lot more eloquent than I am, but you get the deal. So if you're new and you think, oh, my life is over, i got to wear the hair shirt, man, you're greatly mistaken. Whatever you did drunk, you could do stone-cold sober. You could be better at it. You have more fun. And most of all, you can remember it. It's a (laughs) bliss, you know. I was in Mexico about 12 years ago, and I thought I could speak Spanish. My... Because I worked in the barrio, and my Spanish consisted of, like, dame pistola. Give me your gun. (laughs) So so I'm speaking Spanish, I thought. And I could tell by the looks in these people's faces, they look at me. And I said, whoa. So I switched over to English. And they still couldn't understand because I was the only English-speaking person in the room. And uh, you know what? When I got done, they came up after the meeting, and they hugged me. And I could tell who the old-timer was by the surrender in their face. And I could tell who the new guy was by the pain in their face. you know what? They may not have understood, but they understood language of the heart. It's an incredible experience, you know. I always said I wanted to be a part of, you know, and I never felt a part of. I now feel a part of here in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I no longer need to lie, compromise my values, or anything else. And I lied about everything. I remember I even used to lie about my ethnic background. I remember I was in a bar one time. The bartender was Ukrainian. I said, you know what, I'm part Ukrainian. And I go to the bar. He would say, here comes Bobby the Yuki, and uh, <laughs> and I knew a couple words in Ukrainian, and uh, it was all oh, was amazing. I, I lied about everything. Because I had no sense of self. I got that in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I could be myself, and you guys love me warts and all, you know. Some of you a little bit more, and some of you a little less than others, but that's okay. You know. 1993, I got diagnosed with cancer. In fact, it was this time. It was November 93. Really really fluke way I found out. I I was training. I went to run the the Boston Marathon, and wound up getting sick. So I went to get a second opinion. And I remember when it got confirmed, I come home, and that it was lung cancer. I never smoked in my life. Pot for a very short period of time, but I never, you know, never cigarette in my life. And uh, I didn't handle this well. And, uh, you know, because I'm sober for a while, I'm doing the right thing. I'm on the pity pot. And I remember talking to my sponsor. And uh, my sponsor, Bobby, by the way, uh passed away. He, he helped me tremendously. And I didn't have a sponsor for a while. And I felt like a hypocrite because I was telling my my guys sponsorship, this and that. And I felt like a hypocrite. And uh, it was five years ago I got another sponsor. He was here this weekend, so I get to hang out with him. That's pretty cool. But Bobby helped me tremendously. And I remember calling him up. And uh, I'm on the pity pot. He saw right throw it. And he said, Bobby, what are you going to do? Now, I need to tell you, the very first thought to pop in my head is, Bobby, could can smoke reefer because people in chemotherapy smoke pot. <laughs> and I didn't smoke any pot because since I've been to thousands of meetings, since I've been sober, I've seen some men and women yeah, go through some terrible things of their own, and they got through it without picking up a drink. See, so, yeah, you know, I get uncomfortable when people say, hey, he doesn't promise you anything. Hey, he promises you many things. They're the intangibles. You can't put the price on. You know, the, you know, we know the promises. You know, uh, you know, real friendship, peace of mind, and truly know how to situate the juice of baffles and things like that. But th- there's a lot of promises if we do the work. It's just like the real world. You don't become employee of the month or get those yearly bonuses unless you go above and beyond. You go to school, you don't make the dean's list and go, unless you go above and beyond. Same thing, you play sports. You don't get selected for the All-Star team unless you go above and beyond. Same thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't get the rewards just for showing up. you got to do the work above and beyond. And that's why it says sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. For me, they were slowly because I didn't get involved in the program quickly. You know, I took my time. But then that lady said they will always materialize if we work for them. So it's a program of action. So uh, I, I went through, I started going through chemo and the radiation, and, and I went, and rec- uh, I was sick, I was involved in the area, I had to step down from my position. And uh, it was ego, because I was young, I thought I'd be like the youngest guy in this position, but I had to step down because I just couldn't fulfill it. And then uh, I eventually had surgery, I had a uh, uh, part of my lung removed. And I was laid off for a while, and I was always a meeting maker, always. And uh, people start coming to my house. And I'm talking to people I just even know casually. You know, from area assemblies or things like that. And people would come to my house to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, you're looking at a liar, thief, and a cheat. I took from everyone. The only thing I gave was heartache and misery. And people came to my house to carry the message. Man, incredible experience. And I'll be forever grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous. I know my doctors did a pretty good job, but it was a person I ate. And uh, so I was doing pretty good. And... Not that long ago, I was like six weeks shy of like being five years, you know, uh, free, and uh, it came back not that long ago, and like yesterday I just finished uh, like my third week of chemotherapy, and uh, even though I may have an excuse to go out and get loaded, I ain't got a reason to go out and get loaded. I got a pretty good life today, you know, and everything I got today, man, I owe the Alcoholics Anonymous. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a friend back home, I, I I can't claim this for myself, but she says, I, AA's the corner I always want to hang on, I just didn't know where it was at, you know. So, uh, it's just wonderful it really is it's a wonderful way of life if you know, new please get a home group get a sponsor get involved in service it's the whole ball of wax you know you got to do everything and it's just an incredible way of life and please keep coming back I'd like to thank the committee for the privilege of participating in an AA meeting that's all I